One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode is generously sponsored by Yumiko. The holidays are right around the corner. Need a last-minute gift for your favorite dancer? A Yumiko gift card is the perfect way to get them exactly what they want. Visit the Yumiko website at yumiko.com to purchase now or visit their New York boutique. Then your loved one can customize the perfectly attired tights, leggings, and much more. Stuff their stocking with the highest quality dancewear at yumiko.com. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. This week on Conversations on Dance, we are joined by the chief dance critic of the New York Times and one of our most frequent guests, Alistair McCauley. Alistair, an expert on dance history, has previously guided us through histories of Balanchine's classic ballet Serenade and the work of Frederick Ashton. This week, he delves into the true history of one of ballet's most revered choreographers, Marius Petipa. We take a look at what works have been falsely attributed to Petipa, how he was perceived in his lifetime, and why his work still matters. This is our last episode of 2018, and we want to personally thank every listener that tuned in this year. We hope you have a wonderful holiday season and that you join us again in the new year. So thank you for coming on the podcast again, Alistair. We, we were trying to think of how many we had done with you. It's like, Do you know? This is number six. six. Number, I, I, I thought, we thought it was five. Maybe we'd yeah. done. So we have more. You're a fan favorite. So we're happy <laughs> to have you back. Um, and today we're going to be talking about why Petapa matters. And we're excited to talk to you about it. <laughs> so let's kick it off. So you have lectured on this topic at Harvard before, uh, and you'll be be presenting another lecture on December 26th at the New York Public Library. Just to get us started today, can you give uh, our listeners a little background on Petipa and why, even if people may not recognize his name, they are familiar with his work? Yeah, he's a great mystery man. Everybody is unconsciously familiar with Petipa in the ballet world. He's the man who put 32 Fuetes into Swan Lake, for example. He's the one who choreographed the original Sleeping Beauty. Um, he did the original party scene for the Nutcracker. He didn't. He was too ill. He was. He, was, I mean, he only got to work with Tchaikovsky in his seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But he did Sleeping Beauty right the way through. Fell ill during the Nutcracker. But the whole of the rest of the Nutcracker, Tchaikovsky had composed the score according to a plan mm-hmm. that Petipa had drawn out, and he would say, "I want sixty-four bars of this. I want mm-hmm. thirty bars of this. I want it in this mm-hmm. tempo." Mm-hmm. Um, 
Tchaikovsky had already done Swan Lake in 1877 in a kind of version of the score that just doesn't work to this day theatrically. Mm -hmm. But uh, Petipa and his colleagues knew how to turn it inside out and turn it basically into the Swan Lake that we now know. Again, he fell ill and he only did half of Swan Lake. And he also did Don Quixote, he did La Bayadere, he did most of what we now see in Le Corsair, Uh or much of it, um, Raimonda. Right. The bulk. And, oh, yeah, and he edited Giselle and Esmeralda and the version of Capelia we usually see. Mm-hmm. So that's huge. Yeah. yeah. He is, I, I think, much more than Balanchine. He is the choreographer whose work we see most today. Interesting. Um, what ballets are most commonly credited to Petipa that we and our listeners um, might be surprised to learn that he merely revised? You were just saying that he edited some, some items. It's very interesting to go through Giselle to see which bits are by him. And we yeah. don't quite know. A lot of Act Two he overhauled, uh-huh. um, but there's definitely Act in Giselle Act One, the variation with the famous hops on point. That's his that's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, he added that I think in the 1880s. I might be wrong. Okay. Uh, and the last solo that Giselle does in Act Two, she comes in in some versions. Albrecht's lying there mm-hmm. at the front, looking exhausted. She comes in sometimes with um, an armful of lilies and offers it to Myrta, saying, please, please, let him off. Don't make him dance to death. Uh-huh. Myrta, of course, being the bitchy queen of the widows, says, no. <laughs> and Giselle then throws her energy into dancing. That solo that she does there is by Petipa, added again in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's very hard to imagine Giselle without those bits. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So um, and the Capelia that we see is just about all his work. Right. As far as we can tell, there's a, I could get into pedantry as to why Cicchetti and Ivanov also may have contributed. It's mm-hmm. complex. <laughs> so what are some examples of work that we credit to Petipa that may not be um, wholly his after all? Well, the joke one is the what I used to see before you people were born mm-hmm. um, as the Le Corsair Pas de Deux. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not, I think, known in the West. And then the Kirov brought it in 1961 and it made a sensation with ballerinas like Alasitsova Alice, Alice and the great male dancer Yuri Solovyov. Mm-hmm. And then Nureyev did it with Margot Fontaine and it was the calling card of their career in the 60s and right. it used to have longer ovations than the dance itself. Uh-huh. Nobody had ever seen anything because it was the ultimate vehicle for what Nureyev could do best as a male dancer and amazingly Fontaine knew how to hold her own and get just as much applause and she was in her 40s well that's always been true to Petipa the Kirov then revised the whole of Corsair in, I think, I saw production in 1989. Mm-hmm. Now it was revised as a pas de deux à trois, where there's an extra cavalier mm-hmm. that gets complicated. Um, then we found this century that actually none of that, pas de deux or pas de deux à trois, is by Petr Penny. It was added in 1915, after Petr's death, uh-huh. for Kasavana. And uh-huh. it was by a man called Samuel Andrianov. Uh-huh. So there's that kind of thing that isn't by Petter. Uh-huh. Right. One of the other mysteries about him is that um, he was prosecuted successfully in his lifetime in 1862 um, for plagiarism. Mm. Hysterical. Um, by the senior choreographer Jules Perrault. And Jules uh-huh. Perrault in Petter's lifetime was a much bigger deal. He had worked with all the great ballerinas in London, Paris, Milan, and Russia. Right. And he'd been the main choreographer in St. Petersburg for about 10 years. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He was revered. Um, Petipa was his junior. Mm-hmm. Took a dance from Pet, um, Paris dancers when he and his wife danced at the Paris Opera or appeared at the Paris Opera, but credited it to himself rather than Perrault. Well, Perrault was on the on the scene, so uh-huh. he took Petipa to court. Right. 
Right. Interesting. Um, and we kind of have no evidence that actually Petipa did an original thing in his entire career. <laughs> it's possible he came to Paris a lot. He liked to see uh, what people were doing there. And maybe the, all the ideas we think of as Petipa mm-hmm. may be what he borrowed um, from others. And somebody else who was very well known was his brother. He was he was not the big Petipa. Mm-hmm. The big Petipa was his brother, Lucien Petipa, mm-hmm. who was the original Albrecht in Giselle, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and then became a choreographer. And he worked with Verdi on ballet for the Four Seasons in Wagner for Tannhäuser. The score that we now know in Namuna um, by Lalo, that was what Lucien Petipa did. He worked in Paris. Paris was the hub of ballet. Uh-huh. As poor Marius, baby brother, was shunted off to the provinces. Nobody quite realized <laughs> that Russian ballet was going to be the future. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's so fascinating. Were people aware that Petipa was not maybe a true original in its time? And it's just as time has gone on, we've lost sight of that? Or um, what was the perception of Petipa in his time? Um, he probably was never as well paid as Perot had been. I think the Russians treated him as a minor artist. Um, but the thing was, he survived. Mm-hmm. And all of these other people like Perrault, Saint-Léon, his brother, they all died. He carried on into his 70s and his 80s. And there was a very enterprising man who ran the Mariinsky in the 1990s, the unpronounceable Prince Ivan Vzevolovsky. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he wanted to jazz up ballet and he said, we're not going to put up with minor composers anymore. Petipa had been working with uh, Cesare Pugni, nobody's favorite and then uh, for 20 years with Ludwig Minkus right. here's the man in Bayadere and Corsair and blah 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 um, Zevoloski wasn't having this anymore and he said we're going to put you together with Tchaikovsky Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, Petipa found it quite hard work because Tchaikovsky was a very endearing man. They both, they weren't typically Russian artists. They both got inspiration from the West and they both believed in making uh, art about art. Mm-hmm. Whereas the f- trend in Russia was Russian subject matter for Russian people, mm-hmm. yeah. like Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, the painter Ryapin. That was the kind of climate mm-hmm. there. Petipa and Tchaikovsky were different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they got on that way. But rhythmically, Tchaikovsky was much more subtle than Petipa was equipped to deal with. Right. So how did that um, partnership really work for them? What was their dynamic like back and forth? Well, Petipa would set these amazing scenarios, which you can see where it breaks the whole ballet down into this amazing, I think they call it a minutage, where every little item, the guests enter in that crack at so many bars, mm-hmm. this kind of temper. Mm-hmm. Now, Tchaikovsky could deviate from that, but it gave him a framework. Right. And he probably seemed to consult with Petipa at every stage. Uh, and actually, he was the kind of composer who needed a framework right. and really suited him. Mm-hmm. Even if he deviated, you know, it, it gave him a focus, a structure. Right. Um, really, you know, you can you can argue, and musicologists do, about Tchaikovsky's symphonies, about mm-hmm. most of his operas. Only two of them are done a lot. But the three ballets, particularly the two he did with Petipa, are pretty flawless work. It's, right, uh, right. They just stimulated him. Uh, people always say to me, how can you stand seeing Nutcracker so often? And one thing is the music, because it just keeps changing every two minutes. So you don't good. get bored. because it. Yeah. And then the more you listen, the more you realize there's every item in Nutcracker, the ones you think you know about. Just listen. There's so much going on in the orchestration. Mm-hmm. You can see why different choreographers all make mm-hmm. different responses. Mm-hmm. I loved your piece about, um, sorry, I know this yeah. is off topic, but about uh, <laughs> flowers and Nutcracker. Oh, thank you. Oh. It's a great so, pleasure to work on. Yeah, if, if people haven't, 
Reddit yet. They really should because it was yeah. That's and Adriana said she was like crying. Crying. Really. Yeah, it did make me like a little emotional. Yeah. yeah well, that beautiful. means we're taking we're getting. Of course, you're talking about the Balanchine Nutcracker, right, and correct. those two choreographers, Petipper and Balanchine, are related. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. And indeed, Stravinsky too. Stravinsky. The great modernist of the early 20th century. He'd made Faber, Petrushka, Right of Spring. He'd done most of Lenos, though it hadn't yet been published. Then in the 20s, after the Second World, after the First World War, he started to become more interested in neoclassicism. Mm-hmm. And he and Diaghilev, when they were stuck in Spain during and after the First World War, used to play the score of Sleeping Beauty as piano duets. Mm-hmm. And they loved this Tchaikovsky. They were thinking retro. They were thinking back to the Russia that they weren't ever expecting to see again. Uh-huh. Um, well, you think that'd be enough. And Diaghilev then put on the production of Sleeping Beauty called The Sleeping Princess in London, 1921. But actually, when Stravinsky saw it, it was the choreography that overwhelmed him. He, he knew the music. Mm-hmm. What he had forgotten was what Petipa does to it, which isn't literally what Tchaikovsky is doing. Mm-hmm. It's in some ways much more architectural. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he just said, this is one of the revelations of my life. And he wrote in his autobiography in 1935, uh, for me, this was the triumph of the Apollonian principle. Here I see the perfect example of order over chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's classicism from now on. And he said, this is the demonstration of the Apollonian principle. Well, that's 1921, 1928, Stravinsky makes Apollo. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That's before he started to really know Balanchine, but of course the two men then click when they do work on Apollo. Right. Balanchine didn't make the premiere, but he knew mm-hmm. Stravinsky when that when he was working on it. Um Balanchine loved what Petipa was doing. He just came up in this revolutionary period when the the Russians in St. Petersburg were going through crisis in what was now called Petrograd, uh, with no money around, and modernism was trying new things with legs going higher, bigger lifts and everything. Um, but they had one or two ballet masters who would start to like Fyodor Lopukov say, forward to Petipa. And he'd make mm-hmm. new ballets, but they were pure dance, taking the pure dance qualities from Petipa's ballets. Mm-hmm. That was the climate in which Balanchine came of age and started mm-hmm. to choreograph. Interesting. Right. Yeah. Balanchine always credited Petipa. You know, he said he, oh, he took everything from Petipa, but do you think that's really... Sometimes it's as if he thinks Petipa and God are the same person. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I take everything... Uh, from Petipa. And then he also says, um, I don't create, uh, God alone creates, I assemble. But sometimes the way he talks about Petipa and God become oh, interchangeable, oh, I think. You know, I am the, I am the one, the arranger. They did it first. Are there any specific moments that we can think of that he was really strongly influenced by Petipa, like a moment that's very iconic? I'm not sure I'm answering you properly, but my mind jumps. Say we're talking about the Nutcracker because it's mm-hmm. in repertory right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the, most of the choreography is by Ivanov. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably Ivanov was actually doing just what Petipa wanted. I don't think Ivanov in the Nutcracker was particularly original. Mm-hmm. M- maybe in the Snowflakes. Um, the original Sugar Plum Fairy did Gargoyards. Mm-hmm. Balanchine, with a revisionist mind, says, I'll have Gargoyards, but I won't give them to the Sugar Plum Fairy. Uh, I will instead give them to Marzipan. Interesting. Um, I think if you look really carefully, there's a amazing figure that Ivanov gives to uh, the Sugar Plum Fairy, where she, with her back to the audience, she does a high second, mm-hmm. and then she peels down with a fouetté down into supported croisé penché. Mm-hmm. Balanchine kind of does a variation on that also at just mm. the same point of the music. It's just he puts an extra bit of support before she goes down into the ponche. Right, right. Interesting. Um, his, his mind is thinking along those things. It's just, look how I can tweak 
Mm-hmm. That's so interesting about the gargliade too, because that's such like a rare step that right. we don't see that often. It's, it's so about challenging. The only time we really see uh, gargliades in nineteenth century ballet. Yeah, I would think. I think it's actually kind of Ratmansky has discovered a few more. If you oh, look, interesting. If you look at his Sleeping Beauty supporting characters, have what you and I might call demi gargliades. Mm-hmm. It's just done with one foot or oh, okay. the other. But you get Ratmansky discussing with Doug Fullington, and they mm-hmm. can tell you where a demi gargliade or a full gargliade is notated. In the, okay. I think the complete Paquita, that kind of thing. Right. That's another Petipa ballet. There you go. Yeah, interesting. That's so cool. Let's talk a little bit about Ratmansky and some of the work that he's doing to um, kind of bring some life back into these Petipa ballets and do some research into the original. It is phenomenal because, you know, dance of all kinds has these notators and they're normally species apart, mm-hmm. uh, but they aren't choreographers. Mm-hmm. Doug Fullington is a wonderful example of them. So bright, so industrious. Um, sometimes they're much more nerdish than Doug. But, you know, uh, and European companies depend on notators. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the Royal Ballet swears by them. Mm-hmm. Ratmansky is the first major choreographer who's gone and studied the choreography. He's began that, I think, around 2014, and he and his wife took almost a year off to steep themselves in how notation really works. His wife, too. They yeah, no, they're great friends, and they, they look at it how together, cool. and I think, I, I don't know them, but as I've heard him talk about it to an audience, mm-hmm. they kind of consult, and one of them will say, oh, look, I think we didn't pay attention to that little squiggle in the score, uh-huh. and they realize that little squiggle is a little bit of notation that means something else. Right. Ha! Um, so That's even when, his first big project was The Sleeping Beauty. He did mm-hmm. it for American Ballet Theatre in 2015. Mm-hmm. But then they staged it at La Scala later that year, mm-hmm. and I think during that, they both suddenly thought, oh, look, there's that bit of notation. We must get that bit right. Amazing. I don't think they were very happy with the La Scala production. There were other compl- complexities, but they realized they were getting deeper into the notation. Right. I think they've now made tweaks back at the American Ballet Theatre mm-hmm. staging, which will come back to the Met yeah. in June. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first one. Then uh, Ratmansky went on to do Swan Lake, mm-hmm. which he did in Zurich. And I think where you've, it's been announced on your podcast that Lourdes Lopez is, has booked it for Miami. Mm-hmm. Um, well, she's hoping terrific. to, I think, right? Was that? Yeah. I think it was, yeah. yeah. If she said it, it's probably happening. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are all kinds, there are lots of small revelations in it. Um, but a big one is we've, uh, there's fabulous, well known music for the waltz in Act One. Mm-hmm. That's better, but it's never been danced in the West because it needs a lot of dancers. When Segev staged it for the, what was then the Vic Wells Ballet, the Royal Ballet in 1934, he never staged a waltz. Interesting. So now we're seeing it for the first time. It's fabulous. That's so cool. Um, it's like taking a step back in time, but still, yeah. so he's keeping it very relevant. And it's a really good dance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the notation? Has, has there been, there must have been a, evolution in it since that time and changing or is it still really of, very and I'm not an, I, I can't be the expert here you'll mm-hmm. have to get back Doug Fulling to, okay. to get you more we need to get it tells you that. lots on the lower body it varies as to whether it tells you anything or much about the upper body mm-hmm. Interesting. for example with the arabesques the famous arabesques coming down the ramp in La Baudaire the mm-hmm. shades enter right. mm-hmm. um, normally we see 24 of them actually the notation has 48 whoa coming down I used to see 32 in the Royal Ballet production wow. with the Nureyev 
staging just to the shade scene. But the, the question is the line. And it does show not just how high the leg goes, um, which is about 90 degrees, but where the arm goes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, days, of course, most people have the leg higher. And mm-hmm. Mansky, I think, has got it back to 90 degrees. And he's, but I should, I'm rush, rushing, but Bader is another thing that he's tackled. He did it this year in Berlin mm-hmm. in uh, I think beginning of November, I was there. Um, he staged a much rarer ballet, Harlequinade, which most of us ever know as Balanchine's Harlequinade, right. but there it is, the same score by Ricardo Drigo. I think it's an adorable score. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's actually, it turns out that now, there are a few bits where I think when the notation isn't very clear, uh, Ratmansky goes to check what Balanchine puts on. Oh, interesting. But quite often he's either gone to the notation that it's one beautiful dance where he's had to work out really what he thinks Petipa would have done and come up with a, a fabulous solution. But wow. A lot of invention. I love that that's something. So Ratmansky has been so specific that something audience members might not think of, that he's res- restoring something like the height of the leg right. back to what? The original. Girls are happy. Oh my god! Yeah, that sounds like heaven. I wonder if they'll find out about that well, for Giselle too. For those with arabesques, you can imagine they don't terribly want to go on doing a higher line. Yeah, forty-eight times as they come onto the oh stage, or whatever. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> it was originally meant to be forty-eight. Then how, how did that work with the score? Yeah, with the were music. they just repeats or? They just You'll have to ask Doug Fullington. There's yeah, a lot I'd of arabesques, so I wonder. Maybe they know. just bigger steps out. Must Big be. steps, lady. Yeah, maybe there's a <laughs> they probably that's that music yeah, probably yeah. be done again and again. That's probably yeah. what it is. Yeah. Um, how interesting! I haven't thought that through. <laughs> Doug Fillington, we need to you to. Explain. <laughs> um, so d- I, you mentioned the Corsair um, as an example of something that was credited to the, the Corsair Padada as something that was credited to Petipa, but um, that he did not do, and we didn't find out till late, much later. How did that even come about? That. Uh, there was this whole climate that Petipa became the brand name mm-hmm. during his it lifetime. It still feels that way. And sometimes <laughs> yeah. he stamped it on, or it was stamped on ballets that were older than his. Mm-hmm. So we we really cannot work out in Giselle what's his and which was done by older right. ballet masters. Sure. Um, then because he was a busy man and individual ballerinas wanted their own versions of individual dances, mm. he would sometimes say to Cicchetti or Legat, can you fiddle, fix this one? And occasionally Legat would make a whole pas or whatever. Uh, and he said it was better presented as Petipas, even though Petipa hadn't made that number at all. Mm-hmm. Legat tells us this very happily without any acrimony in his memoirs. He said, I made such and such to Rubinstein music and it mm. is, but it's, it's known as Petipa. Mm-hmm. So it was a brand name uh, and then once Petipa died they went on using the brand name so it's convenient to say that the Padida in Corsair was by was by Petipa not Andrianov right. of whom not many of us have known. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Was there any effort after his death to preserve his work kind of like a Balanchine Trust mm-hmm. or Balanchine Foundation? Yes, but well, there were, it was during his lifetime they'd already begun to use this notation. Okay. It's the Stepanov notation. Mm-hmm. The most famous practitioner of it was this man called Nicholas Sergeyev. Mm-hmm. Now, we hear different things of Nicholas Sergeyev. He's another of the mystery men of ballet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but bless him, damn him, he left Russia at the time of the revolution mm-hmm. with all the books of all the notation, and he brought them to the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Uh the Russians have tried suing for them in recent years, really? claiming they should have them back. Right. It's like the Elgin marbles, the, which the British took from the, the Parthenon in Athens. They, mm-hmm. They'll say, these are our treasures. Wow. Um, 
Anyway, Segev took them. Uh, they can't be brought back, really, because other people paid for them after Segev's after. death. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and they're now in the Harvard Theatre Museum. And Harvard has been amazingly generous that they are, most of them, um, what's the word, digitized, and you mm-hmm. can just go free and have a look at them. Wow. Oh. If, you can, if you're good with just getting into a website, go treat yourself and look at the notation for the original mm-hmm. snowflakes in, by Ivanov in Nutcracker. Amazing. It's pictorial. It's so beautiful. You can see Ivanov was making all kinds of different crystal shapes that, to give the idea of snow, mm-hmm. um, but with this big corps ballet, sometimes multiple different crystals around the stage, as well as at one point they all go into a, a snowball. Sure. Uh, the climax of the <gasps> Gonna try to find that. Yeah. How, how um, has anyone made efforts to uh, reconstruct that dance? I've been encouraging Doug Funnington to do that. Uh-huh. He, Doug says that to do it properly, it needs, I think, about fifty people. Wow. He would love oh, to put it on with the school. Uh huh. You know, but you'd have to have oh, the right school cool. with with that. Right, right, right. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. I think Nicholas Segev, the great. He he came uh, to the West in the twenties, and he worked with Diaghilev Company on that nineteen twenty one Sleeping Beauty. Uh, then. Ninette Devawa cleverly got him at Sadler's Wells. So he staged Giselle there, Capelia, Swan Lake, and Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. And those, the royal guarded them like crown jewels, made mm-hmm. very few changes. Uh, and those really became the backbone of what we now know as the classics in the West mm-hmm. because of Segev. He was... He wasn't always happy with everything the royal did with them, but it was normally to do with things like artificial swans, so the, the, the things we regard as more peripheral. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. So one of Petipa's contemporaries was um, Bournonville, and his um, works live on today and are often performed. So what do we think about the way that Petipa's works have lived on and how Bournonville's have lived on? Have one, do, we, do we think that Bournonville's are a little bit closer to the original than Petipa's or maybe vice versa? We don't quite know, to be truth. Bournonville's may also have been changed. When he died, he had a genius ballet master called Hans Beck, mm-hmm. who actually sometimes took real liberties and moved things around. Mm-hmm. But all I can tell you is that Hans Beck and the people who then carried on after him kept the dance life of Bournonville alive. I just love looking at almost all the Bournonville that we can see. Mm-hmm. And it always just feels like dancing. Right. You know what I mean? It's, it's a hard word literally to define what is dancing, but you right. kind of feel you know it when you see it. It right. seems such a simple thing. Uh-huh. Look at quite a lot of companies. I'm afraid to say not least the Russians doing Petipa. And you just think, well, it's academic, it's beautiful, and it's dead. Right. It's stony. Mm-hmm. Um, even the entrance of the shades in Bayadair isn't always the, the poem that it should be. Right, right. Doing, seeing six fairies doing successive variations in Prologue and Sleeping Beauty um, should be so enchanting. And I've known it be enchanting. Right. Sometimes it's just pedantic. Right, right. Yeah. What are some elements of the pedipas style in my head you know it's so easy for me to you know say a balancing style and and right. know what that means or even ashton uh, or even bournonville but i think pedipa gets it's just a it, a lot of people just use it as a label that's like anything that is classical ballet anything 19th century but what are some hallmarks of the pedipa style well as far as we can understand comparing him say to bournonville mm-hmm. uh, at least by his work in the 1990s 1890s Sleeping Beauty, Ramonda, Swan Lake, uh, he's making a much more extensive use of point work. Mm-hmm. He's using the block chew. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
all the latest bits and technique he is incorporating. So when, when double pirouettes came in because of those block two, he's enjoying those. Mm -hmm. He's enjoying promenades on point mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Those things don't occur in Bonneville. Mm -hmm. uh, he's loving the full stretched arabesque. So we mm -hmm. so often see a fully extended fast arabesque mm -hmm. in Petipa in the way that we don't so often in Bonneville. Mm -hmm. Bonneville loves attitude line. Uh -huh. You know, Petipa gives you the full stretch right. and it gives you, he loves you the, he loves the real, miracle that we all recognize in ballet and that you see in Balanchine, which is a woman in particular, a man mm -hmm. to a lesser degree, becomes a work of ideal geometry. Mm -hmm. She just steps into that attitude, that arabesque, and suddenly you think, oh, she, in a way, she's no longer a woman. She is an right. emblem of the divine. Right. That happens, I think, in Petipa all the time. Right. That's amazing. You're just talking about we're so we're talking about the style or things that we notice you're just talking to us like that's just ballet right <laughs> that's just what we know i think right? it seems I, I don't know that he was the first person to do it he may have right. picked up from french choreographers we don't know about uh -huh. but from the history that we can see on stage he does it in a way that bonneville does not Interesting. bonneville is so dancey but he doesn't give us the full the full thing grand glory right. mm -hmm. he also has huge resources so he can have big corps ballet in the way that um, Bonneville did not. Right. Um, he also goes for the other big essence of ballet, which is its sexism, mm -hmm. which I, mean, the, I wish I could do this on video, but, <laughs> but the image that even if you don't know about ballet, you know about is a man holding out his hand and the woman saying, why, thank you. And she takes the hand and steps onto point and instantly holds a great attitude mm -hmm. and that way that her body becomes transformed mm -hmm. with the man's support on the mm -hmm. way she then does support a pirouette. Basically she is there on point. He may never go on point. Mm -hmm. He is there to partner. She may not return the compliment. She can mm -hmm. never, that mm -hmm. sexism, Petipa didn't invent it, but he really crystallized it in mm -hmm. a way that we see it going on, particularly with Balanchine. Mm -hmm. Almost every other character is rather shy of it. Mm -hmm. Those two, Petipa and Balanchine, really give us hmm. now, maybe a very beautiful, glorious, thrilling kind yeah. of sexism. We can say it advantages the woman, mm -hmm. but it's certainly not equality. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. What do you feel is Petipa's biggest triumph? Well, the perfect ballet, and it's great to see as full dance theatre, if you see it in the production with good resources is Sleeping Beauty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not least Tchaikovsky's score is such a poem and it just is doing something different at every few seconds. That's so great. And Petipara, even if he didn't fully grasp Tchaikovsky's music, his just, particularly with all those women variations, his just thinking poetic mm -hmm. things all the time. Right. Something else he goes, I think, beyond Balanchine is his sense of the geometry of the stage. Mm -hmm. When he gives him a major ballerina variation and he gives each woman a different map of the stage, you're going to begin going down this vertical, then you're going to take that diagonal. And at the end of each variation, she's really given us a different atlas mm -hmm. of the stage. Mm -hmm. And you can see he's thinking of the whole stage in a way that I think even Balanchine and Ashton never quite do. Mm -hmm. He's mapping it up. You are the mistress of this space. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And you've got a big ballerina variation like the two ones Aurora does, mm -hmm. act one with a violin and act three with the violin. Mm -hmm. She's mapping out the space. And in spaces, she's just saying, I am the prima. Mm -hmm. And with each of those lines, with the straight line, the horizontal, the zigzag, the diagonal, she does a different phrase of steps, mm -hmm. all mm -hmm. fitted to the music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, you know, people can get so um, defensive and uh, feel that uh i mean certainly i know that cl people that had been raised um 
trained classically uh, and had specific ideas about the full lengths we did in, say, Miami City Ballet. Right. Exactly. This is, quote, wrong. This is, no, this needs to be this way or that way. A lot of what we perceive to be as maybe original because it is iconic today what is not actually original? Like you brought up, um, you had that great um, talk about uh, Black Swan Potata. How, I mean, it's become this huge thing. And, and anyone, if you were to take it out of the ballet or mm-hmm. change it, revert back to the original or have the, the ballerina in a scarlet tutu, as has been done, you know, people like people who think themselves to be purists might riot. Right. But um, <laughs> so now we're seeing these revivals um, that, that are happening more frequently. And you know their history, but what are some components of the revivals that surprised even you? Things that you uh, maybe had presumed were original but are not in these? Um... Well, in a way, the most fascinating was Ratmansky's first mm-hmm. because he did Sleeping Beauty. And it was full of points of style in footwork mm-hmm. and legwork where you thought, oh, oh. Oh, mm-hmm. now some of that you could have predicted. Legs, he was pretty fastidious, did not go higher than 90 degrees. Mm-hmm. He has, he's loosened up on that with Harlequinade and I, maybe Swan Lake. The legs sometimes do go higher. Mm-hmm. And he isn't quite so um, determined about male dancing. Some of that looks more like modern male dancing. Right. But in Sleeping Beauty, he not only would not let the legs go too high, he also often had women just dancing on half point. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. distinguished between half point and full point various times. He had women sometimes spotting to the front, Mm -hmm. which we thought was a Balanchine method. Sometimes spotting, I think, to the side, sometimes in the direction of the turn. So there's Mm -hmm. a whole different uh, set of choices. And he says it's all in the notation he thinks. And he also, Ratmansky has so many other sources, so he knows teachers who knew old teachers who knew about spotting techniques. Right, right, right. And certainly it's pre-balancing things like spotting to the front. Uh-huh. Uh, he can't prove that Petipa was using that, but it probably goes back to at least 1910 and mm-hmm. yeah. maybe further. Amazing. I was surprised by uh, the Demi Point work too. I, I, I remember thinking, uh, seeing the Chen- they do Chenets on Demi Point. I think Absolutely. Florine does, right? Yes. Um, of course, we think of that as a balancing yeah, thing. Of course, you think you yeah. of Shenny's and Demi and Snow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, the female principal in Ruby's does it. There's quite a few core yeah. moments yeah. where, yeah. You do. The Princess Florine does it, and I think some of the prologue fairies too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's Petipa. It probably was standard at that time. It wasn't just Petipa. Right. You know? Yeah. Doing all those things on point was a later yeah. development. But interesting, Romansky brings it back, and it does change the texture. Mm-hmm. And with basically the Sleeping Beauty we're used to seeing in every other production is too slow. Mm -hmm. Um, Ratmansky gets back the right tempo and curiously the fit of the footwork to the faster tempo. You just think this is right. It's just falling into place. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So many things. Retiris aren't nearly nearly so high, but you can do fast, fast, fast retiris if you're just going to cough. Right, right, right. That's true. So just to wrap it up, unless we have anything else we really want to add, but I just want to know why you think Petipaw is had such an impact on ballet and why are we still here talking about him today? <laughs> well, when you think of some of the scores that he used before Tchaikovsky's, some of them are disappointing. I, uh-huh. I get tired of a lot of Bayadere, mm-hmm. and that's better than Don Quixote and mm-hmm. Corsair. I think. <laughs> um, and yet... Even there, those shades come down the ramp in bad air and you just know you are watching an absolute master architect. And mm-hmm. he's so daring that he'll give you the same arabesque with one girl, then another, then another, then another. 
I'm used to seeing either 24 or 32. Mm-hmm. Sure. How amazing it was more than that. Yeah. Just doing the same step and the audience can never have enough of it. Yeah. Right. It's the most weirdly satisfying thing. It's mm-hmm. true, yeah. Just about everything in that core dance that they then do, it begins two-dimensionally with the arabesque and then that beautiful stretch back and mm-hmm. the bra. Tick, tock, tick, tock. All of them doing the same step. Um, then they become three-dimensional when they're all stretched across the stage in vertical mm-hmm. rows. None of those steps are virtuoso. Mm-hmm. Um, to do all of them the same way is so exposed, though, mm-hmm. so it becomes an exercise in high style and just very beautiful. It's a poem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you watch a better per variation for a woman, uh, like nobody now, except almost like minimalists, he'll give you the same step 16 times. Mm-hmm. And if it's the way I used to see ballerinas, the way you would see Aurora do Petit Développé mm-hmm. in the Act 3 variation, mm-hmm. forwards on a diagonal and letting the arms gradually build mm-hmm. and then the head and the eyes and everything start to swim. Mm-hmm. It becomes a crescendo and it's one of the the greatest knockout moments in ballet with a great ballerina. Yeah. Right? I, I think of saying... Mel Park, Liz, Lynn Seymour for me above all, mm-hmm. Barry Oswald demonstrating it, um, Leslie Collier, Svetlana Barry Oswald, Margot Fontaine on film. Each of them does a different poem at that moment. Mm-hmm. But with each one, you just know that the house is in love with her. And that, curiously, doing the same step 16 times right. on a diagonal forwards is the climax of the whole of Sleeping Beauty. Like Phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. And it's Partly because really he trusts the ballerina, mm-hmm. but it gives you the structure and the ballerina then can work out what she can do with her upper body yeah. to make it her. Yeah. Is there a pedophile revival that you would like to see um, most? And actually, Ooh. it can be something that maybe can't be revived too. Yeah. Well, something I've you can see on YouTube, but I've never really looked, um, is Raimonda. Um, now... Um, Ratmansky hasn't got to that yet, but a man who died last year, Sergei Vikarev, who began this whole process of reconstructing, he looked at the notation at Harvard, but he also had all access to the Kirov-Mariinsky resources. Mm-hmm. He staged it not in St. Petersburg, but he staged it at La Scala, mm-hmm. and he did it with the real old original costumes, which are dated shall we say mm. but you can go on youtube i think it's the cast is with novikova doing ramanda it's mm. just very interesting i would love to see what ratmansky was so much more command of stuff mm. yeah. ramanda is the, in a way the ultimate petipa ballerina work it's made for pierina legnani who's always famous as the woman who introduced the notorious 32 fuetes mm-hmm. and people speak about it as if that's all she could do no she had a <laughs> famous back very expressive mm-hmm. and she had famous berets they were the first berets compared to strings of pearls which mm-hmm. later on mm-hmm. became the standard way to describe berets sure. it started with her you look at that incredible hand clap variation in Raimondo where mm-hmm. we see act three or was Cortege en Gois or uh, Paradis mm-hmm. Balanchines take it. Well, she slapped, clapped her hands and then she does bourrées, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. pauses at the end of a phrase and then does more bourrées. Mm-hmm. That's all that happens. Mm-hmm. But, but just trusts the magic of bourrées. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. That. Well, thank you so much thank for you. joining us. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Always the best. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us this week. We are excited to announce that you can now listen to Conversations on Dance on Spotify, in addition to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or through our website at conversationsondancepod.com. Subscribe now to receive notifications of new episodes. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Conversations on Dance. 
See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.